Good morning. The scripture reading today comes from Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. Uh, You can follow me in your bulletin or your Bible. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. John and James, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want to, you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not that way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a large crowd... Um, with a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. But Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage. Stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to them, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he gained his sight and began following him on the road. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Good morning, and happy Mother's Day to everyone. I did remember to call my mother this morning. I was very proud of myself. I was riding my bicycle but before I remembered to call her, but, you know, at least I remembered. So we're going through Mark. It's already been mentioned this morning. We're already going, we're going through Mark uh, much of the second half of the book of Mark. And, and as Todd told us, we're doing this intentionally, looking at Jesus and what he came to do and what it means to follow him. And Todd reminded us a few weeks ago that we sometimes let down our guard in the summer. 
We're busy with lots of things. We're distracted. It can be really hard to stay focused on God, his work, his missional, our missional and mission minister work. It's kind of like we think we deserve a summer vacation from the things of God. And my joke about that over the years has been that if Jesus is really going to return when we least expect it, it's probably going to be in the summer. Our task then is to not let down our guard and to keep pressing on, as Paul says in Philippians 3, keep pressing on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So two weeks ago, Todd told us in Mark chapter 9, uh, he, he started by coming really on the overall structure of the book, book of Mark. Somewhere around the latter part of 8 or early part of Mark 9, depending on which verse, there, there's this turning. Before all this, Jesus has been in Galilee. He's been kind of... Uh, displaying who he is. People are learning more about him. There's vignettes and stories about what he's been doing. But Jesus is now going to turn toward Jerusalem, and he's heading for the cross. And Todd told us that following Jesus always leads us to the cross, our own tribulations and sufferings as followers of Jesus. And I would add that as we follow Jesus to the cross this summer, it's going to get really intense along the way. There are going to be important lessons, though, on discipleship that Jesus teaches, and we should hear all of these lessons on this journey with Jesus. The first week, those lessons were that we need genuine but not perfect faith, that we need to routinely go to the mountaintop to be encouraged, and that we need one another. Last week, in the last half of Mark 9, in that text, the disciples already then were discussing which one of them was the greatest. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? just like today's text, or very similar to today's text. And the discipleship lesson last week was that we're to live at peace with one another, to avoid especially the sins of exclusivity and arrogance. Because as we live at peace with one another, then it tells the world that God sent Jesus. And today we're going to look at two stories of interactions with Jesus as he was on his way to Jerusalem. It's, a, it's really a tale of two questions. And we're going to see that Glory and greatness are found in serving and suffering, and we're going to find that Jesus came to heal and transform. Now, before we turn to our text, I want to pause for a minute to remind ourselves of the secular world into which Jesus entered. We often think about Jesus in the context of the Jewish culture that he entered, and that's appropriate. We reflect on the number of times the gospel writers cite the Old Testament prophets, We reflect on the struggle that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders, people who should have welcomed him as the Messiah but rejected him. But the real culture that Jesus entered at birth was the Greco-Roman culture. Rome was dominant politically. Rome conquered Greece in about 146 B.C. and had really taken over most of the known world. They were the dominant political power. But really, it was Greek culture that overtook Roman culture. It's been said that the conquerors were conquered by the culture. So, so Jesus enters this culture, this Greco-Roman culture, and there are lots of things that are really cool to look at about Greco-Roman culture in these last couple of years. And then I've had time, have had times to travel and see some of the, the architecture and, and the culture and the, the sculpture and the art. It's amazing, the engineering, the literature. There's just all kinds of amazing things that come out of Greco-Roman culture. But there's one thing that's really important about Greco-Roman culture that we need to understand in the context of this story today. And that is that one's value was found in what one possessed. 
the, and the one possession that was coveted the most in Greco-Roman culture was power. Money was important, but power was more important. Todd reminded us of this just last week when he observed that children had no rights, no privileges, and they had no power. They had no standing. Power was, in fact, reflected by the number of people that served you. In that day, it would have been the number of children or slaves or servants you had. If you were in the military, it was how, how, how high up were you in the rank? How many people were under your command? We think we are so advanced and sophisticated today and that people in the past were so backwards and crude, but we're really no different. In our secular world today, power, prestige, authority, money, and control are deemed as what declares that you are a worthy person, that you're a success. Remember that context as we go through our passage today. Now, there are two stories in this passage. One is the story of James and John, and one is the story of Bartimaeus. When I first read this uh, a number of weeks ago as I was beginning to prepare, I was completely confused. I had no idea why these two passages were next to each other. I mean, it really, I was Quite confused. And the reason is really this dramatic statement of Jesus in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This summary statement of who Jesus is, is uh, and what he came to do is, is this, I mean, this is a statement of the whole gospel. This, this is the center of the book, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, everything builds up to this statement. Boom, here it is. Now let's go to Jerusalem and see what happens. Hey, we got this story about Bartimaeus before we get there, all right? What's that all about? But as we look, and as you'll see shortly, they're, they're very closely related in their... Um, and I was just wrong as I read through it the first time. But the first story is really about James and John. The text begins with Jesus describing what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, starting in verse 33, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is actually the third time that Jesus has told his disciples what's going to happen. He tells them first in Mark 8, then in Mark 9. Mark 8, it's a quick statement. It doesn't say a whole lot. Mark 9, he says a little bit more. Now in Mark 10, he, he gives the most detailed summary of what's about to happen. And if you look at each of these passages, the remarkable thing is that they're immediately followed by some discussion between Jesus and the disciples in which he corrects their view of his work and what they're supposed to be doing. The first time Jesus tells them what's going to happen to him, Peter rebukes him. Jesus takes that opportunity to tell his disciples that they must take up their cross and follow him. I don't think they understood Jesus later tells them a second time what will happen to him in Jerusalem. And immediately after that, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. Jesus took a child and told them that anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. I don't think they understood. Because soon after that, as they continue toward Jerusalem, James and John come up to Jesus after he's just gone in great detail about what's going to happen to him And they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Of course, Jesus knows what they're going to ask. But he asked them a crucial question. What do you want me to do for you? James and John reply. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. 
Now, I can only imagine how exasperated Jesus must have been at this point. I mean, how many times do you have to tell him? I mean, good grief. At least that's what I would have responded. But after a little bit more of of an exchange between uh, James and John and Jesus, he calls them all to himself, and he first calls out that power of the secular world that's around them and that power of the secular world that's around us. You know that those who, recognize, who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. And then he tells them again what he has already told them, but it is not that way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Consider those words carefully. They are a cultural, if not a literal, oxymoron. The lowest person in a culture is a slave. And Jesus tells them that the one who is first among them will be the slave to the rest of them. The next lowest person in the culture is the servant. And to be great is to be a servant. So between last week's passage and this week's passage, what Jesus is telling us What he's telling those who really want to follow him to be living the way that he is calling them to live, they must be like children. They must be servants to one another. They must be slaves to one another. Jesus is rejecting this prevailing culture and tells his disciples that theirs is another way. Now let's think about this a little bit further for a moment before we go to the story of Bartimaeus. I wonder what would happen if we all went out the door and started down the street and started asking people, What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What answers would you hear? Now, I I know we get a lot of answers about tolerance and intolerance. I I know those are irritating. I got it. Okay, past those. I think we'd hear a lot of people say that followers of Jesus means that you follow a set of rules and that you behave in a certain way. And to some extent, those people would be right. The ethics of the kingdom of God includes trying to live without sin, and sin is defined as breaking God's law. And those laws are often at odds with the way that people want to live their personal lives. They resent that. They resent that we might tell them that. And so they tell us we're intolerant. But would we ever hear that being a follower of Jesus means that you're a slave and a servant to others? Would we ever hear that? I'm not so sure that we would. And in the words of one commentator, at no place do the ethics of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics of the world than in the matters of power and service. The main clash between followers of Jesus and the world should not be in the details of how people live their lives personally. The main clash should be in the areas of power and service because that is the real difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And if we don't either amaze people or annoy people outside of the church, By serving them and serving one another, we may, like the disciples, not really understand what this is all about. Tim Keller puts it this way. It's easy to laugh at how clueless the disciples are, but instead we should be asking, what are we missing? In what ways are we blind to how God is working? God loves to confound the world, taking what he thinks is weak and using it to bring the world to its knees. For for us is a very case in point, the ragtag Messiah... Twelve assorted illiterates and fishermen as followers gets executed as a criminal and permanently shapes the course of civilization. 
If this is how God always works in our lives, we should always be humble and open in our attitude toward life. We should avoid the smugness of worry. You only worry if you are totally sure of how life should go. We should avoid the smugness of being doctrinaire, proud, sure of ourselves. We should serve one another. We should be slaves to one another. I tell you, I I love, but I am very convicted by his statement, you only worry if you're totally sure about how life should go. uh, I, I need to ponder that one a long time. So let's turn to the other story in our text, the story of Bartimaeus. I told you earlier that I was puzzled by the presence of this story in this location. Again, we've just uh, had this magnificent uh, verse 45 where uh, Jesus tells us that he did not come to uh, be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all. And chapter 11 starts with Jesus entering Jerusalem. I'm just thinking it really ought to just be this transition from this glorious statement right into the hall. And and everybody's everybody's happy as he, he comes in. They're cheering him on and everything like that. But we get this story of a blind man. And, and this story is so important to Mark that this is the only healing in the gospel, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is the only healing where the person who's healed is actually named. Every other person is just described. This is so important to Mark that he actually tells you his name. So something really important is going on here. When Jesus comes by, Bartimaeus starts to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd tells him to be quiet. I'm not really quite sure why the crowd tells him to be quiet. There's different thoughts, but I'm not sure why. But, But Bartimaeus is desperate, and nothing and no one is going to stop him from trying to get Jesus' attention. You know, it's been said that the kingdom of God is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. And here is the best example of it. Jesus stops. The the Greek says Jesus stood still. And just imagine the crowd going along and then suddenly just Jesus stops. I mean, imagine what the crowd's doing around him. And he calls for Bartimaeus to come to him. The scripture says he throws us, the scripture tells us that Bartimaeus throws aside his cloak and runs to Jesus. And Jesus asked Bartimaeus the same question that he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus answers, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. And due to his faith, Jesus heals him. And the text tells us, verse 52, he began following him on the road. Let me point out a couple of things that may not be quite so obvious. The first is Bartimaeus' cloak. And this cloak might simply have represented his outer garment. That's that's true. But it's also likely the cloak that he spread out on the ground, that he knelt on to beg, and onto which people would toss coins as as they went by. And if that's true, then Bartimaeus' cloak is really fundamental to his way of life. And so if that's the case, Mark then may be telling us that Bartimaeus is flinging off his old way of life and running now to a new way of life in Jesus. The second thing is this use of the word road. Notice in verse 46, he's sitting by the road. And now in verse 52, he is following him on the road. The difference in this position from beside the road at the beginning to on the road at the end signifies the difference between being an insider, I mean an outsider and an insider, a bystander, and a disciple. So this closing story, right before, Jerusalem, right before Jesus enters Jerusalem, makes perfect sense. 
In the story before, we have disciples wanting to be in a reflection of the culture around them, the greatest, to be at Jesus' left and right hand. In this story, we have the real story of discipleship, throwing off the old way of life and following Jesus on the road, even on the road to the cross. This is indeed a tale of two questions. The irony, of course, is that it's the same question asked twice. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus didn't ask James and John nor Bartimaeus this question because he didn't know what they were going to say. He asked it so they would have to express what they really wanted, so they would have to express what was really in their heart. James and John, after all this time of following Jesus, still are succumbing to the surrounding worldview. They want power, prestige, honor, and control. Bartimaeus just wants to be whole. And isn't that the story of our lives as followers of Jesus? We have followed Jesus, some of us, for years and decades. We still succumb to the surrounding worldview. And we just want to be whole people. Glory and greatness are found in suffering and in serving. I suspect none of you question that that the teaching of Jesus is that glory and greatness are found in suffering and serving. The problem is that we are, like James and John, overcome by and succumb to the cultural pressures around us. We all do it. We all do it all the time. And right now, you're hoping, Jim is going to tell me the secret. The one thing that if I do it, I will no longer be overcome by the world and the culture. Too bad. If it was that easy, we would have told you that a long time ago. But those of us who preach, Todd, Daniel, John, me, have told you and told ourselves how best to struggle to resist the world and the culture. And it is not, as some will try to do or propose for others to do, to exit the culture. The best way to struggle to resist the world and the culture is what the theologians call the ordinary means of grace. And the way to sustain ourselves in the suffering and serving is through the ordinary means of grace. What are those? The word, the sacraments, and prayer. Nothing, nothing magical here. Nothing brand new. The ordinary means of grace. The word, of course, is the Bible. The only way to sustain yourself in suffering and serving and to resist the culture is to immerse yourself in Scripture. You can do that in many ways. You should be doing that in many ways. You should read it daily. You used to be in some type of community group or discipleship group or Bible study or something where you dive deeper into the meaning of the word. And you should attend worship regularly, which, by the way, covers all the means of grace. The sacraments are baptism and communion. We enjoyed watching baptism today. Todd told us it's not a magical thing that guarantees the future salvation of the child baptized, but it's a sign of the child entering the covenant family. There's a great thing in the the larger catechism, and if you don't happen to have that handy at home, just talk to me afterwards. I'll be happy to get you a copy. And it talks about improving your baptism. It's one of the most startling questions in the world. How do you improve your baptism? I don't know. I was an infant when I got baptized. But it's really cool. It talks about participating with the baptism. It's really cool. Talk to me later. All right? Shortly, we'll eat the Lord's Supper together. We'll be nourished by the spiritual body and blood. We have enjoyed the sacraments here at uh, Hope Chapel, and we have prayer. Whether prayer and worship, as we do here most weeks, or in times of separateness, as many of you did yesterday on the prayer retreat, 
or every day at home at the beginning or end of the day or both or throughout the day. You see, it's the word, the sacraments, and prayer, which are these ordinary ways in which God graces us with his presence, guidance, comfort, and correction. And frankly, I think the ordinary means of grace are rather extraordinary. I think they're pretty amazing. Because it's through these things, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we endure, that we suffer, that we serve, that we resist the culture. Jesus came to heal and transform as well. It is through those same ordinary means of grace that God heals us and transforms us. It is true that God occasionally does intervene in extraordinary or superordinary ways to heal us, even of physical problems. But God's most common and, frankly, most miraculous act of healing comes in allowing us to avoid spiritual death from sin. We all, I mean, I've heard it said, you know, I I just want to be healed. I mean, you're already healed of sin. I mean, of spiritual death. That's amazing. God could easily heal physical infirmities at very little cost to himself. But God's healing of our spiritual death required his death on the cross, the ultimate payment, the ultimate sacrifice. And as we are healed of the effects of sin, we are transformed so that we can serve. How does that happen? Well, when I think about that, uh, my mind turns to, to John 8. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. As God uses his word, the sacraments and prayer to remind us of the healing we have from sin and from the power of sin, we're freed from the culture around us, which tells us to have worth, to have freedom, to be at ease, to be great, is to have power, prestige, money, and control. And when we're freed from that lie, we are free to serve others. And as we do, we will transform ourselves and our culture. What did that all mean? Basically this. If you're thinking that the way to greatness is through power and how many people report to you, if you are thinking that the way to freedom is having enough money, if you are thinking that the way to avoid fear and anxiety is through control, then you are already a slave to power, money, and control. They control you. You don't control them. And you you will never serve others because it will be too dangerous and too radical. But if we are followers of Jesus, God uses the ordinary means of grace to continually remind us that we are forgiven, we are loved, we have meaning, and we are free. We are free to serve others with no worry that we might lose power or money or control because those things no longer define us. Those things no longer give us meaning. That is the healing that leads to freedom that is transformative. And it can come out in a myriad of ways. If you're a student, you no longer have to worry about being in the cool group to have prestige and power. You're free to befriend the friendless, the unwanted, the uncool. If you're new in a workplace, you don't have to think about how do I get ahead, how do I get higher in this organization, how do I have power and control. You're free to do your best, and perhaps you'll move up the ladder. But do your best and be happy when the other person moves up the ladder. And if you're like me, late in a career, pretty high in a workplace, I'm free to tell people I need their help, but to give them the credit when they do it, not me. And I'm free to tell people to call me by my first name. Sounds like a small thing. But people want to call me Dr. Osborne. I'm free to call him Jim because the title doesn't define who I am. So what's your answer to Jesus' question? What do you want me to do for you? 
Are you following Jesus and hoping to have power, prestige, and control, or do you just want to be whole? I suspect very few of us say that we're following Jesus to have power, prestige, and control. But I would ask, are we trying to follow Jesus and follow the culture for power, prestige, and control? Some of us probably are at times. And remember, you can't have two masters. So the discipleship lesson for today is, let your attention to and your participation in the ordinary means of grace remind you daily and weekly that you are whole. You are healed. You are transformed. You are free. And you can be great in the suffering and serving of Jesus and those around you, both in and outside the church. Amen.